all, you can't really talk about the early second wave of the women's movement without talking about This is a WLRN extended interview. Could you talk a little bit about the Lesbian Collective, how it was formed, and what its purpose was or currently is? First of all, this, this, is, this is not my group. Um, we are now a collective, and every member has a vote. And there, there are several women who have been with me right from the beginning, so there, there are now several founding members. What I did is um, I took advantage of a moment, really, when allies, the amazing women at Vancouver Rape Relief, who, um, who have themselves been under serious and sustained attacks, and trans activists and their supporters for decades now um, organized an event three years ago now inviting Julie Bindel as an invited participant um, and a speaker. And the event uh, very much centered lesbians, something that just never happens anymore. So I was very excited. And um, uh, honestly, I haven't been that excited since Vancouver hosted the Gay Olympics, quite frankly. Um, so I had had the profound privilege of finding out for myself some decades ago now how powerful it is to gather and organize with other women. And this has really stayed with me. And I believe that in a culture that increasingly makes female space taboo, that we should do it more, not less. I was also increasingly worried about the erosion of lesbian culture, spaces, politics, how polarized and divided we had become. And I was angry and, and sad at what was being done to individual lesbians and to lesbians collectively. So I took advantage of a moment where there would be a lot of lesbians all gathered in the same room with whom I can count on having at least some common ground. And I said, I'm starting a radical feminist lesbian group, and I passed around a sign-up sheet. And here we are three years later. According to the website for the Vancouver Dyke March, there is a two-spirit, trans, and intersex persons policy that aims to, quote, contribute to a culture of inclusivity and welcome for two-spirit, trans, and intersex persons and repudiate the efforts of a small minority that wish to exclude two-spirit, trans, and intersex persons from Vancouver Dyke March events, end quote. So when your collective was approached by two event board members before the march started, did they state your double X chromosome t-shirt was offensive to two-spirit, trans, and intersex people? Or did they explicitly say it was non-inclusive of trans women? It was very specific about, uh, we were told that this was an inclusive march, and specifically that our t-shirts, which had, um, our, our team were super, superheroes, our lesbian superheroes. Mm -hmm. So we had chosen a, 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 a uterus symbol that looked like a superhero crest with the word lesbian on it, and we made t-shirts so that we could wear them. So the message, obviously, was that lesbians are female. So we told that we would have to take those off, that we would have to leave our placards behind, 
that furthermore, if we we had any double X symbols, or if we had any Venus or interlocking Venus symbols, these are all female symbols, mm -hmm. that we would have to leave them all behind because they excluded trans women. Now, the two, the two, the two board members that approached that us, one of them was um, a trans woman who further reminded us that not all women have vaginas. Wow. So there was no mention of inclusivity for anyone else, including us, by the way. Yeah. When we talk about inclusivity, why do you think women's emotional, physical, psychological needs are always put behind those of men? Well, um, I guess you know, in a patriarchal society, women's emotional and physical and psychological needs are only secondary to that of men. And women are socialized to cater to the needs of men, children, and others. And uh, women are socialized to care for men and pleasure men at the expense of making their own personal needs. So uh, for women who fought for and continues to assert the uh, women's rights and privileges to no longer be put behind those of men, uh, it's actually improved the lives of grandmothers, mothers, and sisters, all women to enjoy a better life, not just here, but in many parts of the world. So the well-being of women is the well-being of everyone. And generally, they are known to nurture and defend their young. These strong traits for the survival of any species. Um, I, I, I think that women have made some hard, um, hard fought for in one game over the last few decades. And um, I think this is at least partly responsible, if not wholly responsible for the increasing instances of just brazenly and openly displayed and tolerated acts of misogyny. I think that the uh, increase in violence and degradation both in pornography and prostitution are all at least partly a response to those gains, including any and all measures to roll back those gains. You know, uh, trans activism has created a platform where misogyny and anti-feminist retaliation really can be openly displayed mm -hmm. under a new brand called Social Justice Warrior. And um, I, I find that quite appalling. I, I really do. Because I, I know that any true social justice movement just would not be so very centered on continuously attacking women. Mm -hmm. And I think this serves as a, as a warning to women. You've gone too far. And if you don't stop now, things will get much worse. And, uh, and by the way, we're going to take back those gains. And you better not complain or we'll give you something to complain about. Mm -hmm. So you better be quiet. These are not the earmarks of a social justice movement. Mm -hmm. not, not by any stretch of the imagination. Ten brave women joined your group during the onslaught of abuse your collective was suffering at the hands of these trans activists during the march. What do you think it'll take to see more women stand up for the rights of lesbians and women in a climate that is so hostile towards women? In the current climate, I think we need to evaluate that one woman at a time. 
I know what you're talking about. I, I felt very isolated at times in this fight, and I felt the urgency of it and the need for all of us to speak out, you know, as well as the certainty that we can't come for all of us. If we all do it, mm. then, then we can turn this around. But I have also, throughout my decades as a feminist, watched too many women get sacrificed, women losing their careers, women losing their reputations. Um, Eileen and I were just talking about this prior to you calling. There's uh, so much being talked about, you know, poor men losing their reputations in the Me Too, in the hashtag Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. I think that far more women have lost their reputations to trans activism. And that's really a shame. So part of me doesn't want to sacrifice any more women. Another part of me really wants us all to speak out. And then I think there's that middle ground in me, which I tend to think is probably more bang on, that we need to identify that one woman at a time. Some women have more to lose than others. Some women are more at risk and more vulnerable than others. Um, of course, they have their own voice and can decide for themselves what the, what the risks are and whether they want to take them. Um, but I don't think we should be in a position to judge them for it. I would also like to add that uh, I think the, the socialization and conditioning of women much earlier and the way uh, women and young, young women are being socialized and conditioned right now is uh, so um, very concerning because uh, it really normalizes the the idea that uh, uh, the needs of women are really secondary to that of, of men. And so, um, like uh, what Danielle had mentioned about the Me Too movement, you would still hear somebody from the media that, you know, uh, it's ruining the reputation of all these men who, who are being accused. And, and for, for, for that to even be out there, it really, really strongly shows that the needs of women are secondary to that of men. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that. I think also, you know, women as an oppressed class were vulnerable to internalized misogyny. Mm -hmm. the, the messages have become so very constant and, and increasingly virulent. And like I said, I think all this, uh, whether you see it consciously or not, serves as a warning. You better shut up. You better not go too far or else. So I, I think women do internalize that in the way that they internalize that they're under the threat of rape on a constant basis, even if they don't maybe articulate that out loud. Or we all have that gut instinct inside of us that that is a threat to us. And um, I, still, I, I think we're also still continuously dismissed as hysterical and paranoid whenever we bring any, any complaints forward. That, uh, we're, and we're often accused of playing the victim card, which just pisses me off to no end. Um, because, you know, you've either been victimized or not. You don't play the victim. And also women care about social justice. And they are being told that this is a social justice cause. And so they want to be supportive of that. 
we need to leave it up to them to decide for themselves what the risks are and whether and whether it's worth it. We also need to make sure that when we resist, that we don't waste that bravery. We have to make our actions count so that the benefits at least match um, the risks. Yeah, and we need to be unified. We can't afford to be fighting with each other now. Let's just maybe not do that. <laughs> And there is unity there. I think we're dealing with a moment in time that is very tense and very frustrated. And um, I know that that unity is there and that um, in the end that's what's going to shine. The Canadian Civil Marriage Act, passed on July 20th, 2005, made it legal for same-sex couples to get married. How do you think we, as Canadians, have gone in that short period of time of being inclusive and accepting of lesbian partnerships in 2005 to now branding lesbian collectives such as yours as hate groups? I think that the this this act, this law has actually benefited not just the women, but a lot of people. And yes, it is a sad thing that now uh, lesbians are being labeled as hate groups. And um, I think that's very ironic. Yeah, these are words that are being thrown around entirely too much. Come on now. To be branded a hate crime, we've been called Nazis and fascists and oppressors and even misogynists. We're being called misogynists by men, April. Like, really, this has just gone way, 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 way too far. And these are really serious accusations. And, but, um, and it's also important to see them in the context of uh, measures that have been taken and uh, future measures that are planned as well. There have been changes to the criminal code in, with regard to hate crime that now absolutely make it a, um, uh, illegal to perpetrate a hate crime um, against trans-identified individuals, which is fine. Our position is very clear on the fact that no one should be subjected to hate crime and not have protection, full protection under the law about that. What is up for debate here is what constitutes a hate crime against trans people. And um, I, I know that there are measures that are coming to further amend um, hate crime law, both in the criminal code, which covers all of Canada, and in the Charter of Rights, that would, for example, remove intent so right now, when you have uh, when you, when you challenge someone on the basis of perpetrating a hate crime, there is a burden of proving that, that there there was an intention to commit harm. If you remove that language, um, then it becomes about who is accusing you and whether they say they have been harmed by what you did and said or not. Now, again, in the current very volatile political climate where the words hate crime, hate group, bigotry, uh, acts of hatred, etc. are being thrown around quite liberally, um, that, 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 that can have a different context. So we're, we're very aware of the fact that not only us, other groups and individuals have been branded hate crime perpetrators and hate groups, um, and we're not sure that this is all not part of a strategy 
extensively at lesbian women is going to come to an end. I don't think it's going to come to an end, April. I think we're going to have to stop it in its tracks. That's what I think. And I think that's coming. Um, I, I, I want to take the opportunity here to say that our collective is extremely proud of this moment. Um, in 2018, lesbians have tried a dive margin globally. Notably in San Francisco, London, and uh, as well as here in Vancouver, without coordinating with each other, without knowing about each other's plan, clearly and loudly all said, "We're absolutely not going to allow this to move any further. We're not going to allow this to continue." And we're very grateful for that moment of solidarity and the way it amplifies our own voices. And that will absolutely continue. More and more women every day are realizing what is going on that their rights are being infringed upon, and they're getting angry. And I think when women start to get angry and start to get together, historically that's when revolutionary things happen. But power, being what power is, they will never stop of their own volition. We're going to have to make it very clear that it won't be allowed. And that's what we plan to do. And I think it's extensively directed at lesbians because lesbians have been really at the forefront advocating for sexual autonomy, for liberation of women, and so lesbians have been really been very, uh, very much uh, the target of um, a lot of threats mm -hmm. and. Um, verbal lashing, physical and verbal intimidation. Yeah, exactly. But I think there's always been a threat to men, you know? And historically we've um, we've often organized in ourselves in a way that maybe affords us a little bit of reprieve from everyday misogyny that all women face. And I think that's a I think we're just not allowed to do that. Um, and also there was a once large and thriving lesbian culture 
in, in which any woman could take refuge, and we welcomed them gladly. There was, there was respite there for any woman, mm -hmm. many of whom, and I, I include myself in that, didn't even realize how much they needed that respite, you know, until they experienced it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's very, very sad that our daughters don't have access to that experience of immersing yourself in female culture, of how powerful that is, of how healing that is, and how just plainly awesome it is. I, I, I grieve for, for my own daughters and for all the young women who don't have that in their lives because it had such an impact on me, such a positive impact on me. Mm -hmm. to, take, to, have to, to have the opportunity to just take a break from it mm -hmm. is just no, no longer available. This, what this erosion has meant, and even in the LGBTQ community, we talked about this in our own collective, and we realized that LGBTQ and the ever-increasing added um, let, let letters that go along with it, none of those categories do not include men anymore. None of them. There, there, are, there are no options. But, again, the good news is that there's us. That's the very reason why this group was started, was out of the need to create more female space at a time where that was taboo, and, and the other reasons that I mentioned. And we know we're not the only ones. We know that whenever, we know this because we know, we, we know our own history as women, and as a oppressed class, that whenever things get hard, Women continue to organize underground and perhaps in silence and perhaps out of view and carefully. But they don't stop. They continue to do that. So we know there's others like that out there. And we're working on seeing if we can't connect with them. Um, that's kind of one of the things I wanted to put out to make sure that if there are other groups of lesbians or allies, that are organizing on this issue, on the issue of protecting female space and protecting lesbian and all women's sexual autonomy. We would love to hear about you. We'd love to know where you are and what you're doing, and we welcome any and all chances to amplify each other's voice. And I think that is going to be what happens. Like I said, there's a lot more women getting angry now. We will reach critical mass. Why do you think gay men are silent on this issue? Well, um, gay men have always been silent on this issue. Uh, that was part of the reason initially that lesbians separated from the, um, at the time it was just the gay and lesbian movement. I remember before the B was added even, at that time it was really, it was a rather small group of gays and lesbians who were fighting for the right to be with each other and in some cases without government intervention or, um, but that's, um, that's definitely no longer what it, what it is. If they have always been silent on this, yeah. um, which is appalling, and I think increasingly appalling, because like I say in the article, surely not, surely we have allies in, in gay men, surely not all gay men are in favor of this deeply homophobic policy um, and strategy that says that lesbians must include men. Come on now. And I, and I think uh, also that uh, um, gay men don't really have um, a 
anything to to lose or gain. They just uh, they are not threatened in any way uh, as much as women are being threatened. Yeah. And that being said, I think during the collective, it was also mentioned that at the height of the uh, HIV crisis, it was the lesbians who were there to support gay men. Yeah. And yet, at this time, they are nowhere to, to, to give support to, to lesbians. And also, the lesbian liberation movement right from the get-go included gay men. But even if it hadn't, again, that's one of the measures of a true social justice movement. Anything that you accomplish should, uh, if it benefits the most marginalized of us, it should trickle up and benefit everybody, shouldn't it? So it, it, it always included gay men. So the accusation that we've always been exclusive is not quite right. But that's not what they mean anyways. What they mean is the term lesbian being exclusive. When we say lesbians are female, that has always been true, by the way. <laughs> we did not just make up that term. It's been around for a very, very, very long time. Going back to the fact that why why a gay uh, men have not uh, have not been active in supporting women, lesbians. It's uh, really uh, it's it's not just sad, but uh, really when they need the support and here we are needing support, there's nowhere to be found. Yes, that's correct. When we talk about Trans men, for example, occupying male space, will often kind of, kind of give them that as a response. Well, women are not a threat to men, are they? Yeah. They're, they're not. So there's, no. if anything, they're, they're more in danger going into male-dominated spaces than anything else. Yeah. Like, I suspect that there is not a whole bunch of women in prison all of a sudden identifying as men. No, no, that's not happening. And there's no concerted effort to fully man into considering trans men as partners or sexual partners or any, anything like that. That's just not happening. Again, like I said in the article, there is no job strap feeling. There is only a cotton one. Do you have anything else you would like to say to our lesbian feminist and radical feminist listeners? I think that we've done the so-called trans-identified community in extreme disservice in letting this singular narrative be pushed forward instead of um, really asking the question, what the hell is going on here? Why? Why are there, is there an increasing population with genuine distress and experiencing hardship over the sex that they were born as and, uh, and, and their gender? There's, there's, there's something very significant going on here. But it's too easy to then just say, well, you're the opposite. Um, you're the opposite sex. You're the opposite gender. I think that's just way too easy. And I think there are multifaceted answers that differ, by the way, if, if you're a man and if you're a woman, and that those are not being looked at. Those are not being evaluated. Um, um, and, of course, all that would cost a lot of money, wouldn't it, which has the current narrative it's a very lucrative proposition as well. And in my mind, that's always been um, a reason in itself to be very suspicious.
saying anything new here. We have we have been trying for decades to to, to have this debate. Um, but in order to have it, both parties need to be willing to come to the table, and that's what we're missing. We're, we're definitely missing that component. Um, so um, I'm I'm personally still willing to engage in debate with anyone who is willing to sit down at a table and agree to critically examine the very question we just mentioned and others, and to look at the clashes and and to see what the way around is. I have my own opinion of that, but um, uh, you, you know, me and my collective, we, we don't just believe in self-determination and autonomy for ourselves. We really do believe that that is something that everyone should have. But I, I don't see that happening in the so-called trans-identified and non-gender binary community. I don't see a process um, where there is genuine self-determination going on. Instead, like I said, there's this very lucrative, very profitable, and potentially extremely damaging singular narrative being put forward to a growing population that we know studies have been done. This has been confirmed. There's a high comorbidity. We're talking about vulnerable people, and we have a duty of care to not take advantage of those vulnerabilities. You know, sometimes I have to remind myself as well that in trans activism, um, the movement has been hijacked, yeah, by um, not, not, not the greatest arm of it, if I can say that that way. Um, but there, there's a lot of other uh, people out there identifying as trans who don't necessarily agree with these tactics. So I really do think there is common ground to be had. I, I, I think that the, the movement will have to be led by other people, by people who are willing to engage in the debate and, and who are willing to self-reflect as well. And I get it, self-reflection is a very hard thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've had to look at the impact of misogyny in my own life and it's, and it's been rough. Um, but, but I, I do think that's what needs to happen here, to do like we did, to get together in groups of peers and not focus on how they're going to get back at church, but focus on what the hell's happening to us and what are they doing to us and is it okay? And is this what we needed? And is this fixing the problem? Mm -hmm. and, I, I, and I think we might actually, if that happened, I, I think we might actually have something revolutionary happening there as well. But that's not happening. That's what I'd like to see happen. Also, I think what, uh, what concerns me is that while we grapple on, you know, what the answer is to, um, to put an answer on our face, every day, every moment of the day, young lives are exchanging ideas, trying to understand what is going on. And um, I, I think that the, the fact is that leftists are being labeled bigots, and leftists are being uh, accused of being hate groups. Uh, there's no counter-narrative that they are hearing, and that really concerns me. And um, what to do around that, I guess, is also of such importance that it might be overlooked. 
extended interview with Daniel Cormier and Eileen. Both women are members of a lesbian collective in Vancouver, Canada that sustained lesbophobic bullying and harassment in the name of trans activism at this year's Dyke March. If you'd like to reach out to the lesbian collective, they encourage all allies to send a word or two of solidarity via email at thelesbiansvancouver at gmail.com. This is April now. You can follow WLRN on Facebook, Twitter, WordPress, and Tumblr. We would love to hear from you. Please send us an email at wlrnewscontact at gmail.com. Solidarity, sisters.